Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle, creator of the Teenage Personality Quiz. Head to TalkingToTeens.com for a free PDF explaining how your teenager thinks. We are here today with Michael Kimmel. Dr. Kimmel is one of the world's leading experts on men and masculinity. He is the SUNY Distinguished Professor of Sociology and Gender Studies at Stony Brook University. He has written many books, including Manhood in America, Angry White Men, The Politics of Manhood, The Gendered Society, and the bestseller, Guyland, The Perilous World Where Boys Become Men. He's lectured at more than 300 colleges, universities, and high schools. He's delivered the International Women's Day annual lecture at the European Parliament, the European Commission, and the Council of Europe. And he's worked with the Ministers for Gender Equality of Norway, Denmark, and Sweden in developing programs for boys and men. He was recently called the world's most prominent male feminist in the Guardian newspaper in London. I cannot wait to talk to Dr. Kimmel today about Guyland and about things like sports, hazing, hookup culture, what Kimmel calls the guy code, bros before hoes, and specifically what parents can do to prepare our young men and women for this toxic environment that they might find themselves in sometimes. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk to us today. I've been reading Guyland now for the past few days and just it's got me thinking about all kinds of issues from my own life and from other things that we've talked about on this podcast. So I'm really, really interested to get your take on a lot of these issues. Can you just briefly tell us how you got into this field of study and what propelled you to write these books? Well, the first book on masculinity that I wrote was Manhood in America. And it was really a book about what has it meant to be a man in America, and no one had ever really done it. There are, you know, libraries filled with books about women. There was really never a book about men as men. What does it mean to be a man to men, and how did they know it, and who told them what it meant to be a man? So I, that was my first book, and I, I basically traced the idea of masculinity historically in America. And as I was writing that book, so that, that book came out initially in, in 1996, and three years later, I had my son, and well, my wife had my son, and, uh, <laughs> and so I started to watch him and watch him develop and watch the world that he was entering. And at the same time, I was teaching in a university, so I was looking at college-age guys as a particular age group, like what was going on with college-age guys. 
And the newspapers and were just filled with stories about hazing debts and binge drinking and hooking up and all kinds of stuff. And I realized that, you know, this is the world my son's about to enter on the one hand. And on the other hand, this is the world that I inhabit professionally. So I wanted to begin to look at what does it mean to be a man for young men, 16 to 26. Now, the reason that I picked that is because this is a new stage of development. In, in 1904, a psychologist, one of the most famous psychologists in American history, G. Stanley Hall, he was the president at Clark University in, 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 in Worcester, Mass. And Hall said in 1904, and this is the part that I think is really interesting, he said, you know, in the 19th century, children went directly from being children to grown-ups. And they did that around age 13 or 14 because they graduated from primary school and then they went right to work as an apprentice, right to the family farm, right off to the military. They, you know, go west, you know, seek your fortune. But he said now, 1904, he said, now there's a new stage of development in between childhood and adulthood. And he named that stage of development adolescence. He's the one who invented it, the term. And he said, something's new. This is a period of identity searching and questioning and turmoil, et cetera. And he said, that usually stops by age 18 or 19. By 18 or 19, he said, now remember, he's writing in 1904. Right. By 18 or 19, he said, you're a grown-up. And let me tell you, that was true for the first half of the 20th century. You know, you, know, you think about, like, like, what does it mean to be a grown-up? There are five things that a demographer will tell you you have to do to be an adult. You finish your education, you get married, you get a job, you move out of your parents' house, right. um, and, uh, and, and you have a kid. Have a kid, right. Those are the big five. Yeah. Not, virtually none of my students who are 20 has had that, have had, completed all five. Right. So, Nor so, are they planning to for, for a significant right. number right. of years now. And my, my mom completed all five of those within three months. <laughs> she graduated from college in May, got married in June, immediately got pregnant with me, moved out of her parents' house. And that September, she started her, 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 wow. teacher, her right? That The average age of marriage in 1950 was about 21 years old. Yep. Today, it's about 25. Most of my students plan to get married when they're in their late 20s, right? 28, 29, 30. So, so, here's, so here's the thing. There's a, a new stage of development in between adolescence and adulthood. It goes from about 18 to 26, which is perfectly, you know, sort of coincident with late high school and early college. So that's what I did in Guyland was I tried to map this world because it's a world, curiously, where grown-ups are completely absent in the lives of young people. They go off to college and they're basically self-governing, right? And so what happens is, you, you know, you, you think of your own high school experience. You're in high school and your parents are always like on your case, monitoring what you're doing, checking in with you all the time. And suddenly you go off to college and like, there's nobody there to wake you up in the morning. There's nobody there. I always tell this to my students. I say, look, if your parents have to wake you up three or four times to get ready for school, don't take eight o'clock classes your first <laughs> semester, 
right? Because you're not used to it, you know? So, so, so what happens is these young people come into colleges and they're self-governing. And what happens is when you, once upon a time, you had your father or your coach or your mom to tell you what it meant to be a man. Now, you know, what you have are 19 year olds telling 18 year olds what it means to be a man. And that's the, that's the kind of context or the crucible. And I know that my work here really does coincide with the work that Peggy Ornstein's doing about sex, because where most guys seem to learn about sex, and this is much to the consternation of their parents, is from each other and from porn. And if you think, it, uh, you know, just to continue our, anticipate what we'll talk about later, if you think that pornography is what sex looks like, if you think that's a documentary, right, right then, then you're in trouble, <laughs> you know, because it doesn't look very much like that. So my point is, okay, you come into your last years of high school, your first couple of years of college, and what you have is a world in which guys are constantly being asked to prove their masculinity to other guys. And this, I think, Andy, is the real key to understanding Guyland, is what are, you know, I, when I first wrote the book, people said, oh, you know, Kimmel hates young boys, young men. And I think there's nothing more, more untrue. The reality is what I was trying to do is I was trying to explain to young men and to, of course, their parents, this is what your sons are being asked to do in the name of proving their masculinity to other guys, right? This is what they're asked to do. They're asked to do all kinds of things that they would never in their right minds do otherwise. And what you don't understand is they're constantly being policed by other guys. They're constantly being scrutinized. I often give this example, I don't know if this is true for you, but when I was, um, when I was in middle school, and you know how middle school kids are, you know, so what we learned is your instinctive reaction reveals your true self. Now what that meant was before you have time to think about it, your instinctive reaction will reveal something about yourself. So here's what we did. We, we would sneak up behind the guy on the playground and we would say, look at your fingernails. Now, do you know what I'm talking about? Right, right. And does he look this way or this way? Yeah. Radio. Um, so if you hold your palm to your face and curl your fingers towards your, your, your face, that's okay. That's masculine. But if you hold your palm away from your face and look at your fingernails that way, that's feminine. You could beat him up. That's legit. <laughs> You have called out his inner fairy or whatever. Yeah. That's what we, right? So, so think about this for a minute. You have to think all the time about how you look at your fingernails, how you walk, how you talk, how you dress, how you cross your legs, how you move, right? Your voice, the tone of your voice, right? Because at any moment, someone could say, that's so gay. At any moment. So you have to constantly, so, so you, this takes a lot of thinking. You gotta be sitting there in the playground saying, now don't, now remember, curl your fingers in when you look at your fingers. Don't cross your legs and right, yeah. Exactly, so, so um, what I'm saying is that this is what guys are, 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 are up against. I tried to write a book that's compassionate, that says to parents, 
listen, this is what your boys are being asked to do in the name of proving their masculinity. And if that's true, then we can offer support. We can say, I get that. I'm going to give you some resources so that when you go out into that kind of gender policing, you're, you're more stable, you're more armed, you can navigate it better. A lot of what you do in here also seems to be kind of uh, pointing out how ridiculous some of the things are. And it makes me think, wow, I wish I would have read this when I was 16 and just kind of entering into this phase that you talk about. It would have saved me a lot of uh, <laughs> missteps and kind of having to figure things out for myself. Um, because so much of these these like rituals and these um, you know tests of masculinity that that men put each other through and put ourselves through um, are if you really examine them closely totally stupid and totally yeah, ridiculous. I know, I know. And when you look back on these things later in your life, you think, "Oh my God, I did that!" <laughs> you know? I didn't do that again. Yeah, right, yeah. right. Where did we think that was a good idea? You know. And, and yes, of course, some of the, you know, in, in order to get people's attention, I go to some of the more extreme versions, obviously. But, but I, do, I do feel like it's important um, to sort of, you know, you, you could have not done some of those things right. if you had, had a couple of, if you, if you had some, some, some resources, if you had some good friends who'd say, you know, it's cool, you don't have to do that stuff. Or if you had a, a voices in your head of your coaches or your parents or good friends saying, it, that's you know that, that's that's nonsense. You don't have to deal with that. You know it's it's the fact that we don't really know that there's a world outside that world in a way. So that's often what what I think you know gets in our gets in our way is that's the only voice in town. And I wanted to you know I I want to write it. I wanted to write it so that you could have read it at sixteen. But I also wanted to have written it so that your parents could read it with you. Yeah. And they could understand why you seem to think it's a good idea to do the idiotic things that you're doing. <laughs> One of the things that I thought was really interesting uh, on page 60, they're talking about sort of the underpinnings of Guyland, and one of them is entitlement and is like this culture of entitlement. You mentioned this show that you, I think, were a guest on called A Black Woman Stole My Job. And so, and so it's like these white guys in their late 20s and early 30s who are all just really angry because a black woman stole their job. And you come on and point out, say, well, I have just a question about the word my. Where did they get the idea that it was their job? Why wasn't the show called A Black Woman Got A Job or A Black Woman Got The Job? These men just felt the job was theirs because they felt entitled to it. And it, it's just such a great example of the entitlement that you're talking about. So where does that come from? And why do you call that out as one of the main underpinnings of Guyland culture? Okay, well, there's, there's two answers to that question. I'm really glad that you read that passage because that passage stuck with me after finishing Guyland. And the next book I wrote was called Angry White Men. And that is the example that I use at the beginning of the book to talk about men's rights groups and father rights groups. And I interviewed neo-Nazis and white nationalists. And, and so the idea of entitlement is, is that we thought that these jobs were ours. You know, when we say, you know, 
when 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 people say like uh, you know you will not replace us, right? And as they did in Charlottesville, or when they say, uh, or when they say, you know, this is our country, you know, go back to where you came from, right? You know, and I think you know what racism or or sexism often sound like is we white men we're supposed to run the show, and if we're not able to, you know, you can't do it. That's not fair to us. In a radio format, it's hard to visualize, but you know, we think that like this is a level playing field. And when I say this, what I'm doing is I'm holding my hand at a really strong angle. So we think right. any policy that tilts it, oh my God, even a little bit, we think water's rushing uphill. It's reverse discrimination against me, right? So what entitlement means, I think, is that these were our jobs, our positions. They're taking it from us. The last people who support democracy is the hereditary aristocracy. Because they don't want to share. They got everything. They, right. And white, let's face it, white men have gone from 98% of all of the positions of power to about 88% of all the positions of power. So when, so when people of color or, or, or women look at that, they go, wait a minute, you've got 88% of the positions right. of power. Yeah. And we say, yeah, we're losing. We're losing our edge. <laughs> yeah, right. So, but here's the thing. You can't tell people that their feelings are wrong. Their feelings are their feelings. You yeah. can't tell them, well, it's wrong to feel that way. You should feel differently. Well, no, I feel this way. But what you can do is you can say, your feelings are real, but they're not necessarily true. And the difference is your feelings are real. You feel them. And I'm empathic for that. But they're not based on an accurate assessment of the situation. The reality is, you know, and I mean, this is what I say in, in, in Angry White Men. You know, to angry white men who think like, you know, we're the new victims of reverse discrimination. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't immigrants who created the climate crisis. It wasn't feminist women who outsourced your job. It wasn't LGBT people who canceled your retirement benefits, you know? It's like, yes, you should be angry, but that's not the enemy here, right? So the entitlement piece is really important because that's where the resentment comes from. You know, it's weird because on, on one scale, on an objective scale, you know, from outside, you would say white men in America control pretty much everything. But that doesn't mean that white men, you or me, we don't feel particularly powerful. Right, yeah, on a day-to-day -day basis. Oh, um, when, when you say that to people, they, they, guys say, what are you talking about? I don't have any power. My wife bosses me around. My yeah, kids boss yeah, me around. My right. boss bosses me around. I'm, so, so we don't come from a place of feeling like we're in power. We come from a place of not feeling like we're, that, that we're more powerless. And that's really important, powerless, that feeling is really important when you put it next to the ideology of masculinity, which is to be in charge, be in control, king of the hill, win at all costs. And stir that up with some entitlement. And yeah. I should be in should charge. And yeah, yeah, right. And now here I am feeling powerless. And exactly. it's a recipe for, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a recipe for harm, for self-harm. For, yeah. fear, for depression, 
you know, in older men, it's a recipe for that kind of despair. We're seeing, you know, that, that people are now talking about deaths of despair, right? You hear this language, you know, about men in their 40s and 50s, deaths of despair. Well, that is a gendered despair, right? That's a despair about not being the man you thought you were going to be or that you should be. You are unable to support your family. You're unable to make a connection with your partner or your, your wife. You, you're, you're alone. You're, you know, I mean, and, and where, where, in our, where do you go with such a feeling of failure? It's, it's impossible. One thing that this makes me wonder is, well, so is the answer that you want to, you know, not make your kids feel entitled? You know, you want them to feel like empowered to go out and take the world by storm. But then is the answer maybe more like helping them find proactive ways to get that feeling of power in their life? I guess what, as a parent, what do you do with this? And how do you kind of interpret that into how you should parent or be? You know, there's some really good research, for example, on uh, achievement in school. And it turns out that girls and boys are almost identical in fourth grade. And by eighth grade, girls are doing much better in English and language, but they're doing about the same as boys in math and science. So I'm going to give you sort of the parenting advice about how to deal with this. The data suggests that girls tend to underestimate their abilities. And you see this, for example, in research on the workplace. If, if there's five criteria for a job and a woman has only four of them, she won't put herself up for promotion. But if a guy has two of them, he will, right? Hey, whoa, yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm there. So, okay, so girls tend to underestimate their abilities. What that means is that in science classes, there are very few girls, but the ones who are there are really good. Yeah, right. Okay? Fewer numbers, really good. So their levels of achievement are about the same as boys. Now, boys tend to overestimate their abilities, which means that there are far more boys who aren't as good, so they bring mean scores down, right? In my university, when I went to college, so many guys wanted to be doctors, wanted to be pre-med. Yeah that the story was that in your first semester of your first year, organic chemistry was your first semester of your first year. And this was the course they weeded people out. Right. And half the class would fail, half. Because they wanted to let you know early on in your college career, you weren't gonna be a doctor, right? Yeah, give you time to go choose a different major. <laughs> so this was humane, seek life elsewhere. Right, yeah. So this is what I mean by overestimating. So what can parents do? Help their children get a realistic assessment. For girls, that often means you go, girl. You Giving them a little push. Girls in STEM, girls code, girls rule. Pushing girls to be more assertive. And with boys, it often means being more realistic about seeing where what they can and can't do. Interesting. So they're not devastated by it these kinds of, of things, because it's in that devastation, it's in that failure, that they interpret that as humiliation. And humiliation, shame, 
is very often psychologically the origin of violence. The moment you feel emasculated, you've got to do something to restore the, your manhood. And that, I think, is where violence often comes. You do that to me, I'm going to do it back to you. Yeah, and there was a statistic in here that I thought was so interesting. On page 209, you say you ask guys all over the country what they think the percentage of guys on their campus who have sex on any given weekend, and the average answer you hear is about 80% when the actual percentage is closer to 5 or 10%. Right. So I just think it goes back to what you were talking about earlier about you feel that way, but it might not necessarily be the truth. So I think a lot of these guys are feeling like, wow, man, I should be getting laid a lot more. And as a man, why am I not having more sex? And then that feeling of entitlement. And then when the actual statistics are 5 to 10%, well, most of the time you're not going to be getting laid. And so that unrealistic expectation, I guess, kind of just sets you up for like, yeah, to put, think of the pressure. Think of the pressure on you at this moment when yeah. you think, you know, look, if eighty, if you think eighty percent are, are, are having sex on any given weekend, then yeah. you know that twenty percent of the campus is pretty much a write-off in some way or another. Right. You go to a party, totally unattractive, or right? not even or, interested you know, in it, or or married, or you know, what, what, whatever. Right. right. Um, so that means basically every eligible guy must be out there just totally slaying it. Except you. <laughs> right. And then you're going to a party this weekend. Yeah. You are saying to yourself, everybody on this campus got laid last weekend except me. I am getting laid this weekend. And then you yeah. go to a party. And that's what women have to put up with. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I think this is sort of where that, that incel stuff comes from. Like yeah. everybody else is getting some but me, you know. And, and rather than say there's something wrong with me, I'm going to say there's something wrong with them. We're here with Dr. Michael Kimmel talking about his book, Guyland. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. This is our responsibility as well. It is not okay for us to think that they can police themselves. And then they're all throwing up because they're all completely blind drunk. And, you know, like, I don't need you to vomit on me to prove that you're a man. But there's something wonderful about this. I was sitting at, at Yankee Stadium with my son, and I guess he was about 10, and A-Rod hit a home run. And I said, Zachary, you're gonna remember that. You watched A-Rod hit a home run. And I said, you know, when I was your age, I was sitting here with my dad and Mickey Mantle hit a home run. And I said to him, he hit it right over there. I can still remember that. Yeah. So Zachary and I are, are sitting there with that, holding that moment. And a guy from behind, the, in the row behind us, leans over, taps Zachary on the shoulder. And Zachary turns around and he says, I was sitting here with my father and I saw Babe Ruth in a home run right there. <laughs> and it was like, you know, there was something wonderful in that moment that was something just moving to us sitting in that place of fathers and sons and grandfather, you know, that the sort of the, the timelessness of sport to men. I think there's something lovely in that. And I don't want to, you know, just throw it all away. And I think it's usable because if it was an important part of our lives, and we share that with our sons, 
it gives us a foundation to talk about other things. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.